Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Today we're talking to Stella Michon. She is an associate marriage and family therapist, and her practice is in Sherman Oaks, California. Before we get started, <laughs> I always like to tell you guys how I met my guests and where they appeared from. And Stella is a unique case because we share a complete a-hole ex-boyfriend. <laughs> That's right. That's very right. <laughs> um, we were thinking of how much to divulge, but basically um, Stella was so sweet and she reached out to me um, after I made my YouTube video on being in an abusive relationship. So it actually got quite dark and not fun and she had similar experiences but we're out of it now we're safe yeah (laughs) yeah go us (laughs) yeah um I forget what your letter said but you were like I was considering warning you but I didn't want to overstep my boundaries well I think it was something along the lines of that I had seen I didn't know you you know maybe we had mutual friends or like I recognized you via social media or other connections but I had seen it from a distance and like, yeah, felt compelled to reach out to you in some way, but I think that that can often come across as, you know, coming from a place of ill intent or jealousy or, you know, and I I didn't, I don't know, it didn't really feel like my place, but I did want to check in on you because I just felt like oh no, I don't want this girl to be with this guy. She seems like so light and beautiful and he's, Go on. No. <laughs> and he's dark and I don't want her to be there. Yeah. Um, but then I didn't. And I think maybe I held some guilt around that. So I reached out to you, like also just admiring the courage of being transparent about your life. Mm. Um, and yeah. Yeah. No, I was really grateful for it. I wonder how I would have received it, actually. I definitely wouldn't have thought you were jealous because I remember being awake enough to know that I was in a bad situation. Right. And I definitely would have believed you. I wouldn't have been like, oh, look at her trying to snake her way back in. Yeah. No, I don't know if that's what I mean. I think I mean more like is it really helpful to reach out to someone in that place it's not always the thing that really helps someone. Yeah. Um, and I, and my purpose would have been to like be a resource to you or be helpful, but I really didn't know what was going on mm-hmm. and I didn't want to function from a place of assumption. Like she's in a bad relationship because I was in a bad relationship. Oh, but it was true. <laughs> right. But you never know. <laughs> no, it's and true. I try not to make assumptions about people in their life ever. That's so, nice. yeah. So yeah. 
I, the only time besides my friends being worried about me, which was very prevalent, but they just got sick of telling me that I was in a bad situation. Cause you know, they just get exhausted by that. Yeah. But I have a neighbor across the way who still despises me because every once in a while I have, I try, I try not to have big parties, but every once in a while it's like sound travels. I have this like beautiful porch outside and she has a baby. So she's screamed over the fence more than one occasion. Right. But when I was living with the a-hole in this apartment, he would bring over like all kind of sorted characters and they'd be like screaming out on the balcony. Right. And... And then I never realized how bad our relationship was inside the house. But at one time I went over there to apologize to her because it just felt like it had, you know, reached a fever pitch and I felt really bad because yeah. I hate stepping on people's toes and that's not my character. I hate that. So I went over to apologize and she like didn't even, you know, those screen doors where you can see out, but you can't see in. Oh, yeah. She like refused to open her screen door <laughs> to me. She was just like not even having it. And um, I was like, okay, well, I just came to apologize for all the noise. I'm really sorry. I'll try to keep things under control. And she was like, thank you, but you're in an abusive relationship. You know that? And I was like, excuse me? And I got, like, really defensive and, like, my cheeks got hot and I got embarrassed really quickly. And I was like, um, you, what do you mean? And she was like, I hear the way he talks to you. I hear him screaming at you. I hear how he treats you. Like you, she's like, I'm not your friend. I don't care about you, but you should get out of that relationship. Right. And I stayed in it for like what? Another six months or something. Right. So to your point, I think it's not always, it's impactful, but it doesn't really instigate change. Totally. Yeah. Right. I mean, it depends on who it comes from and the context, but people telling us, their perspective of our truth before we come to the conclusion of our truth on our own doesn't always register. Right. It's like going to someone being like, you're an alcoholic or you're an addict. And really, I think that a lot of that has to happen on your own. 100%. So, yeah. Yeah. But we made it out alive. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thriving. You're thriving. You have two beautiful babies. True. A man that you love. Yes, very much so. Uh-huh. And he loves you back. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Most of the time. <laughs> I'm in the same situation without the two babies. <laughs> <laughs> that seems nice. Yeah. <laughs> A little more free time. Yeah, totally. Um, but I really wanted to bring Stella on because aside from having this shared, uh, horrendous experience, she is a therapist for marriage and family counseling. Is that how you say it? Yeah. So essentially MFTs, so marriage and family therapists, it's just kind of the most general licensing that people get in California. It Mm -hmm. doesn't really have to do with marriage or family per se. It's just like a psychotherapist, um, There are other licensing tracks that people can go on. They can become licensed social workers or they can become licensed like clinical counselors. But MFTs, it's just the most kind of prevalent and popular in California. Um, And I'm only licensed in California. It's typically a state-by-state situation. So I could never work with couples and be a marriage and family therapist, or I could never see a family as a unit. I could always only see individual adults or children. Um, oh, okay. But yeah, I can. The name is a little confusing. <laughs> yeah, I definitely didn't know what it was. But yeah, I'm I'm a psychotherapist. Okay, cool, yeah. cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, I really wanted to bring her on because besides that video resonating with her, she was resonating with the problems and all the complications that come with quote-unquote Christian counseling. Um, And I was telling her before we began recording that you guys write me so many emails that really pull on my heartstrings, and I've really wanted to address the mental health issue within Christianity for a really long time because I, not having had this experience myself, didn't realize how insidious it would be for someone to have a genuine mental health issue and have a pastor or like a 25 year old youth pastor say, I'm sorry, you're experiencing that. Let's pray the demon out of you or, um, you're not praying hard enough or you're being punished for your sins. And this is why you feel this way. Right. Um, and those are the worst case scenarios and the most or the least ethical of the, uh, approaches, But either way, I really wanted to talk about some of the letters that I've gotten from you guys and ask Stella her perspective on them and also just ask her general perspective of what it is to be a genuinely licensed therapist and Mm. her view of these complications that are brought to us as religious people. Right. So thank you. Yeah, I'm (laughs) really happy to be here. Yeah. Um, So one thing that you touched on that was really interesting is just talking about the ethics that you hold as a licensed therapist versus some of the things that you might see in Christian therapy in its worst state. Yeah, so I guess I first want to say that I don't really want to speak with too much authority as to anything that any of the specifics of Christian counseling besides what I've educated myself on, what I've heard from people's experiences, you know, I don't really know much about that field, what that looks like. And what I do know is that some quote-unquote Christian counselors are have gotten master's degree and have gotten licensed within their state. I don't know what licensing they're getting exactly, if they're MFTs or if they're um, licensed social workers or what exactly they're doing, but some of them are, and then they maybe do Christian counseling as kind of like a specialty, like how I might specialize in eating disorders, let's say. I just wanted to say that yeah. first off because I <clears throat> because I, I don't know and I imagine that yeah. that exists and I don't want that resource to feel totally um, off limits to people. Yeah, um, and I really appreciate that. The ethics that I hold as an MFT, because we have to take licensing exams, right? So in the first year of being an associate, which I'm still an associate, I had to take a law and ethics exam, and part of my ethics code tells me essentially not to put my personal belief systems onto my clients. I'm not supposed to steer my clients in a direction of what I think is right and what I think is wrong. I'm supposed to encourage them to have conversations, uh, thoughtful conversations, about discovering what that value system is to them. And I think that's very different from being, let's say, a Christian counselor that has a very clear idea of what right or wrong is based on, like, scripture or whatever. Um, It's funny you say that because I'm thinking that's very similar to what I'm doing on God is Gray. 
because I know the Bible has been misinterpreted at times and it's thousands of years old and we're still like struggling through it. And, you know, it's very, it's so much more complicated than the average like chick like me doing a cursory read is going to get from it. Right. And I'm really encouraging people to seek God. Like you said, have those conversations to figure out what's right for your life. Like that's what I keep saying. Like don't listen to what someone is telling you is right and wrong. Right. Have those conversations with the beyond, with the divine and get those answers for yourself. Totally. And there's so much mistrust within the Christian community. Like, no, we can't say that because people will go astray or they'll go off their quote feelings, which is another really... Um, manipulative like phrase that Christians use to like scare each other out of basically just trusting their intuition right which is so scary and abusive to me (laughs) yeah yeah but like you're just saying in an ethical practice that's exactly what you would be doing encouraging the person to trust themselves and to like have those conversations yeah absolutely I mean let's say I were to get audited in some way or someone were to like report me to my board and they were to, like, investigate my practice to some extent, if they found out that I was sitting across the room from my client saying, like, uh, that things that they were doing were immoral and that they should be doing something different, that would be problematic. Mm -hmm. So I come from that perspective of that being part of my, my ethics, not only my internal ethics, like, within myself as an individual, but part of, you know, the practice that I work within. Yeah. Um, And I align with that. I find those ethics important. And that's why I became licensed and why I made the choice to become licensed and as opposed to maybe becoming like a life coach or something in that world because I like the fact that I have to be sure that I'm considering those things when I'm sitting across from people and considering their mental health. It's really serious. Yeah. So you mentioned you have had clients that clearly have religious background or currently in a religious-minded right. state. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you have any like experiences you could share or like any commonalities you see and issues they bring up? Or Yeah, I mean, I think that the most common thing that I see, I see mostly like young adults, I would say, mm-hmm. um, or transitionally aged youth, which is like, until people are 25 um but more like 25 to 35 year olds is the bulk of my practice I see a lot of people that are struggling to define their own value system Mm. and they've grown up in homes um with really strong religious ideas that guide how they've assessed themselves and how they've assessed right or wrong and how they've assessed the parts of themselves that are acceptable and the parts of themselves that are not. Wow. How do you navigate something like that? Because my original assumption would be that, of course, that would encompass sexuality. I'm sure that's a huge part of it. Totally. But also... Christians get so much anxiety often from even just how we date. Like, is it moral to go on a date with someone that you don't see as your husband in the future? Is it immoral to go to a college when you're not sure that God has spoken that to your heart? Like you Mm -hmm. have all these extra anxieties of right and wrong that you wouldn't even necessarily 
think about how often you're reading your Bible, whatever. <laughs> right. And that's so interesting based on what you said before around like the fear of essentially having a connection to your own value system and a connection to your instincts. Like how are you supposed to make those decisions if you don't have that connection? I know. You're always supposed to turn to the other or to the something greater as like, oh, please guide me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it ends up being, please guide me, man that is leading this congregation right because he's just telling you I don't know I'm sure I come across as such a hater of the church institution and I mean sometimes I am because I do have so many issues with it but I just I know there are wonderful leaders and there's wonderful churches but it has been such an abusive thing to watch people I get attacked for this all the time don't tell people to trust their feelings I'm like Right. What else do we have? Is our intuition not God-given? And how are we supposed to lead our life without trusting that compass? Yeah, I mean, I 100% think that your connection to your intuition can be an extremely important tool. And like when someone says intuition to me, I also think of their ability to gauge safety and to Mm. gauge like the parts of the world that they need to be careful of whether that's people or experiences like our body has physiological responses that are important for us to listen to Mm. just like as women we I think start to feel uncomfortable around certain men or certain experiences and we want to listen to that I think of that as gut and instincts as well yeah and I think that a discourse that tells you not to be in line with that could be dangerous for some people. Definitely. Um, There's also, do you ever see people in abusive relationships that they're not recognizing because of the like man is the head of the household situation? I don't know about that demographic maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think I've definitely seen people in like emotionally abusive relationships. I haven't seen people in like just because of what's ended up in my office. Mm -hmm. There are other people who would see totally different situations yeah but who are being mistreated absolutely on emotional levels um and there is a very strong discourse um or narrative that's come from a religious place that tells them that they should uh withstand that Mm -hmm. and or they have to find a way to work through that um like because you can't get divorced or... Yeah, divorce is so wrong. Mm-hmm. And leaving your partner is so wrong. And being the woman that doesn't dedicate yourself to the work of marriage is wrong. Right. I think that they're, at least in my experience of the clients that I can think of who have these struggles, it seems like there's more responsibility on the female partner to keep the marriage together. It's not like, okay, you're being emotionally... Um, abusive let's go seek out help together and you know you'll get help and I'll get help it's like they somehow have to lead that Mm -hmm. which seems really backwards to me um and I should just say quickly that in my practice and in my ethics as an MFT we are not advised to see abusive couples who are actively abusive as a couple because that can typically make issues worse so in that case it would be the abusive partner who would need to seek out separate therapy 
but what is the woman supposed to force him to do that? What is that going to look like? Yeah. So I think there becomes this huge responsibility of like, it's on me as the woman to make this relationship work. What are some of the biggest blinders you see in women not recognizing the emotional abuse or the men not recognizing being emotionally abusive and, you know, using religion to mask that reality? I don't know how much I've seen just religion be the thing that's masking it. I think it's like a multitude of things that are making it difficult for them to identify with that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say more so it's about one of the things that I see more so than even religion is also just it mirrors experiences that they've had in their lives growing up, whether that be a trauma-based experience or, you know, their family dynamic was maybe abusive or just not, I don't know, not healthy in some way. Mm-hmm. They, it's easy to accept like, oh yeah, this is what a relationship looks like. But also any kind of internalized hate or shame leads you to believe that you're not worthy of a relationship more than that, that something is wrong with you and that something is intrinsically bad about you. So this is the relationship that you deserve. And that might be more on a subconscious level, but I think that exists. And I do think that that connection to shame can be fueled by, um, some, like religious, religious I mean, it's interesting you say that because I haven't been able to go to therapy to unpack, <laughs> well, anything, right. but also, and especially that situation that you and I share. And that was, and continues to be confusing because I look at my family and my parents are still together. They're in love. You know, no one's perfect, but I didn't feel like I was subject to emotional abuse between my parents or anything. It wasn't really something that I feel was in my childhood. Right. So it just, it does beg the question, at what point did I feel like I wasn't valuable enough to stand up to that or I got to that place? Well, I don't know if that always exists either. I also think that in, in the conversation that we're having right now, we're getting close to a more victim blaming narrative which is not what I want, what I believe at all, saying that, oh, we had blinders on, we couldn't see what was happening to us, as opposed to we were with manipulative, gaslighting, deceptive partners Mm -hmm. um, who found us in a time where maybe we were more vulnerable for whatever reason that may be. And that is what made it so hard for us to get out, even if we did see what was happening. Yeah. Um, so I don't really like the idea of like, oh, you have the blinders on, you need to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. That's on you. Yeah. Because I think that puts blame on someone that doesn't really deserve that yeah. blame. I think that uh, abusers are very good at what they do. Yeah. Um, whether or not they know that, they have a, they have a pretty strong skill set of sucking someone into a vortex, isolating them from reality in whatever way that may be, and making it very hard for them to connect to their strength. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, 
Yeah. I think that that can be a huge part of why someone is disconnected from the truth of the situation or whatever you want to call it. Like they don't really see the abuse at hand because the abuser is really good at making them question their sense of reality. 100%. <laughs> yeah. There, I would say the people that are popping in my mind that are abusive, male and female, right. um, do seem to have a profound lack of awareness that I can't even fathom unless, you know, whether they're lying to themselves or they're just really good at masking that awareness. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people who fall into positions of abuse, being the abuser, have experienced some serious traumas in their life. Yeah. Um, and they would have to probably consider and face a lot of things that are difficult to Is the root of it usually like control or? I think it varies. It varies. I mean, I come from the perspective that nobody's like problem story or mental health issue is the same as the next. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that each individual is extremely unique and that yeah, that, that exists within abuse as well. But just coming from like an empirical perspective uh, in terms of research, I think that just like sexual assault, um, you know, perpetrators, I think abusers fall within that same category where they've most mm-hmm. likely experienced some like level of trauma or abuse within their own life. Um, that cycle truly breaks my heart. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. It's very true. Yeah. And that's why I always want to try to see the other side too because I – you know, my dream is that people on both sides of an abusive relationship, whatever the dynamic, even if it's sexual or at its worst, you know, pedophilia or something, God forbid, would actually seek out help and feel able to seek out help. Totally. I mean, I think those people are just as deserving of empathy. I don't know how to get into this, but you were saying that shame is a huge component of something that you see among religious clients. Um, amongst all clients (laughs) I mean not all clients but I just think that shame is kind of like the most toxic emotional experience and it's it's like an epidemic (laughs) what's Um, the root of shame how does shame get us okay so I I I recently I think got a lot of clarity in terms of the definition of shame that I think is really helpful I can't wait um but (laughs) And I think it came from Brene Brown. I don't know if you know that is. I love her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Brene Brown is like a social scientist and researcher, and she does a lot of work around shame, vulnerability, um, empathy, and like leadership. Um, If you don't know who she is, you should check her out. She's great. And she's also religious. I don't know what she identifies as. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I think she was raised Catholic and then kind of moved away from the church because she wasn't connecting with some of the... um, some of the ideology and like uh, her religion becoming kind of political and all of that. So she moved away from it. And I think she since have ret- has returned to Christianity in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, I got off topic. So Brene defines guilt and shame as guilt being um, I've done something bad and sometimes being a useful term or a useful thing to experience because sometimes we do shitty things mm-hmm. and we want to make amends or whatever that looks like um and that can drive us to be better yeah and shame is I am something bad um Mm -hmm. 
and that's, you know, the internalized experience of something is deeply flawed and wrong about me, and that thing is unlovable mm. um, or unaccepted. And I think one of the reasons that that might exist, and I don't want to say with any authority again that this is a direct sort of uh, production of someone's religion or faith, but I think that if there's a really strong discourse that tells you this is right and this is wrong, let's say if it's around sexuality and, you know, you're attending a church that tells you that or, you know, like your religious community very strongly believes that you're... Um, sexuality and the way that you represent that is wrong. Yeah. Um, you're going to probably have a pretty strong relationship to shame around that, and that you you're gonna learn right away whether it happens to someone else or it happens to you that that part of you is not okay. Yeah. Um, and that that part of you is bad. Um. And and yeah. And I think that is one of my biggest complications when people reach out and seem to really need professional help. I hate to say it, but it's true. I never, I always like reiterate, please seek secular counseling because I have such a deep distrust of obviously sexuality in the hands of any Christian counselor and again, to your point earlier, like, let's just be kind and assume there are really ethical Christian counselors in the world that are doing it beautifully. But in general, that is still considered for a wide variety of Christians to be an inherent flaw inside of you that needs to be gone or needs to be ignored forever. So I don't see in any capacity where you could ever seek a Christian counselor to help you with that issue. Yeah, I don't have the answer to that, but I guess I would imagine that there must be, you know, there are Christians out there that are practicing Christians that also embrace the LGBTQ community, so I would think that there must be a counselor that's in line with that. Um, And that would be amazing. What I I might suggest people do... um, is like, let's say you do want a Christian counselor that feels important to you, but you also feel like you're struggling with a mental health issue and you really want someone who's going to have proper training and education within that field and isn't going to just focus on the spiritual elements of recovery. I might reach out to a secular counselor or therapist in your area and ask for referrals if they know any Christian counselors that they feel like are strong psychotherapists or strong clinical counselors that work from a Christian perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And they might have ideas. Um, There might, I might even, I could maybe even investigate that within Los Angeles. I never have because I've never had anyone ask me. Um, Most therapists or counselors I think would be happy to investigate things from a religious perspective with you and educate themselves more on your religion if they needed to or if it was important to you. But um, I think a lot of therapists and counselors will help you find resources. Like, you know, if someone emails me and does a consultation with me and doesn't think they're a fit, I always follow up by saying, or, you know, they can't afford me or they need to use insurance I don't take or whatever it might be. I'll say, like, please let me know if you need help finding a referral. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of part of our obligation as therapists is to make sure that the people who reach out to us are accessing good care. Yeah. 
So, in other words, if someone is dealing with an issue yeah. that wants a Christian lean on things, yes. the prerequisite, in your opinion, would be that they have to be um, licensed and coming from... I, like, hate to speak in absolutes. So, sorry, this is just no, the way that I fine. am. I, I just never know what's best. I can never know what's best for someone, right? But I would... I, yeah, I think if it's important to you to have someone who has a really good understanding of the mental health perspective from not only religion, meaning they have um, knowledge on diagnostics, they have knowledge on, you know, different theories as to how to approach clients and they have different tools outside of religion because maybe religion doesn't feel like the only thing that you need to be utilizing, then yeah, I might reach out to someone who is licensed or who has had training outside of the church. Yeah. Because one thing we were talking about earlier as well is how Christians in general are so willing to accept medicine and scientific advances. Um, If you have cancer, you're not going to be like, oh no, I just want to pray it away. Like the majority of Christians, aside from like certain fringe groups, right. are not going to reject. Yeah, they're going to get radiation or chemotherapy. Yeah. They're going to accept those advances. Exactly. Right. So I think it's valuable. Like the reason I'm trying to make you say what I want to say, which <laughs> is not fair, but I'll yeah. say it, is that, you know, I have had, I've just had negative I've had conversations with people that really, really rubbed me the wrong way, whether it be from the God is Great community in my email box or Christian friends of mine that I didn't know were struggling with different, you know, anxiety or different mental disorders that they were honestly told to just pray it away or they were really told that it was a demon. And I know a woman that I can't diagnose her, but she was acting out with a lot of like sexual issues and she was referred to a Christian counselor with no license whatsoever that was just Bible-based and those things rubbed me the wrong way so hard because I obviously as a Christian believe my religion is the most profound beautiful thing in the world and and prayer could heal someone from cancer like I'm one of those crazy people that actually does (laughs) yeah However, I would always say, but also, you know, book your radiation appointment and, you know, like you have to be wise about things. So I think it's a tragedy and can really be to people's detriment to ignore all of the scientific and psychological and advances that have been in the, you know, medical field as far as mental health goes. Christians should feel okay to access all available resources when they're having a problem with their mental health. Yeah, no. I guess I could frame it by saying that I think training is really important. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And I think someone that has a really strong knowledge base, like I would never, if someone reached out to me and was having serious health issues from a physiological perspective, I wouldn't send them to someone who didn't have training in that. Yeah. And I really actually don't know what a Christian counselor's training looks like. I don't know how you hold that title. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that there, like I said, there are some Christian counselors who are licensed 
in whatever, I don't know what their license looks like, and then decide to sort of lean into the Christian population as a specialty of theirs. And I think that's probably very different than someone who's like, I don't really know what, I don't know what other Christian counselors look like. I really don't. I mean, I think some of them go to like Bible college and, yeah. and study it from that perspective, which is limiting, obviously. I, I will also say that like everybody resonates with a different perspective and everybody resonates with a different kind of therapist and everyone deserves to access their best life and to live their preferred life and their preferred self like one of joy and fulfillment and freedom and if you are reaching out to christian counselors or the christian community to try to find that and you're not getting that and you're still in pain and suffering um you deserve to find something different Mm, i like that i really appreciate you saying that Yeah. yeah um and this would bring me to my line of questioning that I'm least familiar with, which is like mm. mental disorders that people suffer. You know, I really don't know how to address it when someone does say they're wrecked with anxiety and they're trying to pray it away and it's not working. Or um, what else do people face? Anxiety is a huge one. Depression. <laughs> Depression. Suicidality. Yes. Self-harm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, because so, I'm not going to be the one to say, pray it away, even though obviously that would be a part of it for me. So so what's your question exactly? Your question is like, what do I see come up in my office in terms of mental health issues or diagnoses? And yeah, how I guess might maybe. that be connected to religion? Or? or just to give them like some hope or some guidance if they're suffering any of those. So I tend to stray away from diagnosis as much as possible like I mean I think diagnosis can be really important obviously because you want to understand what's going on with yourself you want to have access to care Mm -hmm. Um, if you're going to go a medication route you want to get the proper medication all of that Um, but I think sometimes diagnoses can be really pathologizing um, and make people feel like more so there's some internalized problem with them like you're depressed Mm -hmm. so that's like some seed that's been planted in you or you've been born with that you're now going to live with forever, which I also don't believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that most people that I have met in my life could meet the criteria for a diagnosis at some point in their <laughs> life. Fair. I say that to be like comforting and normalizing and that the way that we diagnose is through this thing called the DSM, the Diagnostic statistical manual and um I get to decide whether or not someone fits a diagnosis or not which is a little bit scary which is also why you want someone who's properly trained but you know I go through this this checklist let's say and I'm like yeah you meet all of this criteria so technically you meet this diagnosis and for a diagnosis of depression it's like two weeks or more of you know these different symptoms to this extent, right? Yeah. Um, most people are going to have that experience at some point, whether or not it's because they're grieving, they lost someone, they lost a pet, they lost a loved one, um, whatever. Like, that's going to happen. I, I think very few people go throughout life without actually meeting the diagnostic criteria for a diagnosis. Yeah. Um, 
because I know a lot of psychopaths now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of crazy ass people. The girls love overdiagnosing men. Yeah, totally. He's, He's a, a narcissist. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but. No, I think I, normalizing is very important because I think a lot of people feel in the dark and social media makes it worse. All studies are pointing towards it's making it worse yeah, as far as loneliness goes. Yeah, because it's like glorified goes. life. Oh, yeah, and it's glorified. Yeah, you look at someone's life and you and you don't you don't see like their truth and you don't see the parts of their life that are difficult and it makes you feel like the parts of your life that are difficult um, are wrong and you're in that alone and that is not the case i mean i think that some of the most outwardly functional um uh motivated successful people are suffering in some way Mm -hmm. um and i think that the idea that you've done something wrong in your life uh to invite that struggle is just twisted yeah it's bad um so so yeah and most therapists that you're going to see have also struggled with mental health issues. So just ask them about their past and maybe that will also help you connect. And not all therapists might share that <laughs> yeah. with you, but. Um, no, I think there's so much power in people telling their stories. And that's totally. maybe one positive thing of the Internet, which is like blogs and, you know, right. YouTubing where you someone can actually be. Like, I had this experience. And right. other people can raise their hand and be like, oh, my God. Thank totally. you for saying that. I had that experience, too. Yeah, like, in your podcast, you're, like, providing a platform for people who might not have access to, like, more progressive Christian thought. Mm-hmm. And they can be like, oh, right. I'm, yeah. like, allowed to care about my religion and that part of my identity and also want to embrace things that might not fit into the way that my community sees fit. Yeah, absolutely. So you would say, in general, there's light at the end of the tunnel of some of these darker diagnoses that people suffer. Yeah, I mean, I think that everyone, like I said earlier, deserves to figure out what their value system is, figure out how to live in in line with that, aligned with that, um, be able to... uh, find network of community that will support them in following the you just saying that is like my follow-up question was going to be would you support my saying that the people you surround yourself by are crucial and boundary building around yourself is important because I know for someone with anxiety for example you know religion can really exacerbate that by compounding you know oh you're already anxious you should also be anxious about eternal damnation (laughs) it's just like do you need to be around those people that are scaring you all the time um no (laughs) I, I mean I don't know how to answer that differently but I think that yeah the choices you make of who who you're gonna allow to be in your life the boundaries that you're gonna set with people in your life that you want to keep in your life but may have a negative influence but you they're still important to you like you know I have so many clients who care so much about family family is like integral to them mm. but they have relationships to per- certain people in their family that they can have really damaging effects so how are we going to allow you to have that relationship and continue to prioritize family while also setting boundaries that will allow you to 
uh, separate their belief system from your belief system um, and maybe have less of a negative impact on your life. Yeah. I think it can be both and. It doesn't have to be either or. Yeah. And on the flip side, I was talking to a girl recently and just encouraging her that if someone is bringing light and goodness into your life, but they don't identify with your same religion. Mm, yeah. Like you can still welcome them in if you, right. if they are respecting your belief system, they're not challenging it to a point that you feel threatened or, you know, whatever yeah. made fun of, you know, there's, uh, there's so many incredible people in my life that enrich it all the time that don't make me fearful of hell that aren't Christian. And I have, you know, there's just Christians that have made me feel terrible and mm. there's secular people that have made me feel terrible Right. Secular people that have made me feel closer to God. Totally. You know, Christian people that have made me feel very far away from God. Right. So maybe stop choosing your friends just based upon that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same as like, just because you identify as Christian, I can't imagine that you actually say, uh, share the same morals or values as, as the next Christian. So seeking out people that connect to what you find to be really sacred and true about life might be more important than the label that they hold amen yeah <laughs> anything else we covered a lot of good bases so. i don't know <laughs> if anyone has any questions i'm like available if you're nla you can reach out to me that's great for either a consultation with me or referrals in la like whatever yeah you can ask me anything via email my email is um, stella.michonne at gmail.com. So S-T-E-L-L-A dot M-I-C-H-O-N at gmail.com. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you guys all for listening. I hope this helped. Again, reach out to Stella if you have any questions or thoughts. Um, this will not be the last conversation about mental health. I know it's a huge issue and you guys ask me a lot. So I promise there's more to come. Yeah. And we love you guys. Love y'all. <laughs> God bless. <laughs>